Catherine Just is an artist, photographer, and activist living in Los Angeles, California. Her work has been published on the cover of National Geographic, Inside O Magazine, and shown in galleries across the globe. Her work investigates what really lives in between the words and relationships, and she considers her art a process of sacred listening, which I just love that so much because this is such a huge piece of storytelling, listening. And while great artists like Catherine do tend to make great storytellers, it's Catherine's personal battles that make her work extraordinary. Catherine got sober from a meth addiction at the age of 18, and she tells us throughout this interview how much art is really what saved her. She is also the proud mom of 12-year-old son, Max, who happens to have Down syndrome, and she's currently developing the Max Harrison Foundation, a foundation that empowers people who have been culturally disadvantaged to have a voice using creative expression. Her very first program will teach kids with Down syndrome how to use cameras. There are just so many layers to Catherine, and I found our conversation to be richly layered with profound insight and wisdom and healing. I could have talked to Catherine all day, quite honestly. She's like an old soul. It felt like I was talking to a multi-generation of people who've walked this earth for thousands of years and their stories come out of Catherine's lens. I really hope that you will feel that too. I know that something inside of Catherine's story will not only strike a chord with you, but will inspire you to go and live your best life as Catherine is now living hers. So let's get inside the inside story with Catherine Just. Hi, I'm April Adams Pertwee. I'm your host of the Inside Story podcast. I've been telling people stories my entire adult life as a broadcast journalist, video producer, and digital storyteller. These days, you can find me at Light Beamers, where I'm building a community of women who are ready to step into their brave by sharing their story with the world. On the Inside Story podcast, I'm bringing you some of the best stories I'm discovering from both the women inside of my community, as well as from around the streets of the internet. Plus, I'm digging deep to share some of my own stories with you along the way. My hope is that these stories will help encourage you to examine your own story so that you can share it with other people. I have a motto at Light Beamers. When we share our stories, we shine a light. So with that in mind, let's get down to business today and share the light found in this episode. Catherine, I'm so excited to have you on the Inside Story podcast because I've really been kind of salivating for quite some time to really learn the inside story of you. After um, getting introduced to you and getting to know you a little bit inside of a a group that we both belong to, uh, a a mastermind that we both belong to, which is always so fun, right? Like how we get to meet people and discover, you know, who's out in the world. And that's exactly how you and I came to meet. So first of all, let me say welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You know, you have, by all accounts, from from what I can see and that I've heard you speak of, this story that is 
pretty complex and pretty interesting that involves a lot of, you know, personal pain, obviously personal journey of recovery and kind of putting your life back together. Also a lot of your own story that has led to you being such a powerful activist. And then just the creative side of you, I think is something that I'm fascinated by because I really appreciate um, fellow creatives and how we get our art out into the world. And you have been doing that with your photography and art for quite some time. And I think we'll just kind of dig into some of those pieces and kind of learn more about you through the lens of all of those different textures, if you will. Let's start here. Let's start with the art and photography piece. And I, you know, being a creative myself, I know that that for me started really early on in childhood. When did really your creativity start to sprout for you? What did that look like for you? How did that manifest? That's such an interesting question when you said it, because I thought, well, for me, when I was younger, I just wanted to be Cher. So I was singing and dancing and wanting, you know, to be on stage and all of that. And uh, so the the creative piece of it didn't really like as far as art, visual art, that didn't actually happen until I was on drugs and in and got kicked out of high school for not I was forging notes to get, you know, to do whatever I wanted to do. And a pile of them grew in the high school office and they finally got a hold of what was going on and they kicked me out of high school and I got sent to this other school for kids that needed a little more attention. And what happened was I started doing more drugs and figuring out how to use the, how to get around that system. And there was a class that you had to take at this school. It was just one class in art. That's all they offered. And in this one class, this teacher, Susan Burke, told me that I was talented. And she sort of sat on me, so, so to speak, to, to start and to finish projects. And she just really encouraged me to pay attention to, to what I was looking at, basically. And I was drawing from real life and, and addicted to crystal meth at the same time. And, and, uh, and it was then that I really learned that visual art was something that interested me at all. And uh, because I was on meth, it got me very focused on what was happening in the moment. (laughs) So it was a strange, it was a strange sort of intersection between having somebody in my life who pointed out something that I was good at and, and was interested in me in a way that mattered to me at the same time that I was deeply into uh, a drug addiction. But that was really the beginning of it for me. It was life changing, honestly. You know, and it's pretty incredible because like when you read your bio, right, like you've done some pretty incredible, uh, you've had some pretty big accomplishments in your career, especially with your photography, um, you know, being on the cover of National Geographic and getting your your photos inside O Magazine, like those are big feats, right? And to think that it all could have gone a different direction had someone not spoken positive words over you. It's so amazing. You know, we have these, you know, I meet many people who take classes and say that that they aren't artists and that somebody in school when they were younger told them that they weren't artists. And it's so amazing to me how powerful when we're young like that, how really meaningful and powerful and long lasting people's words can have on and shape the rest of our lives. I mean, that's pretty incredible that somebody, that one person, I think she saved my life. Because when I did eventually decide to get sober, when I, I graduated high school, I, I checked myself into treatment. Um, 
I didn't know what else to do with myself except to go to art school because I didn't know that I, there was anything else I was good at. I didn't know what else to do with myself. So I went to art school and it was because of her, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful that she, she had it in her to not only point out what I was good at and make, and sit on me to start and finish things, but also she didn't give me a hard time about my drug addiction and she knew about it. She could have told people, and I'm so grateful that she didn't because there was no way I could have gotten sober had it not been my choice. So there were a lot of things that went, that went really well in that, in that, um, relationship I had with that woman. I I really appreciate how she handled all of that. Well, you said something just then that's really, really powerful. You said there was no way that I could have gotten sober unless it had been your choice. So what, what was it that made you choose that? Like, why did you, what was it? Was it that, was it that moment of her saying you're a good artist and you've got talent? No, (laughs) Um, no, I didn't get sober until I had already graduated. I don't know how I graduated from high school, but I ended up graduating from high school and, um, and I was dating a drug dealer and there was a moment where um, a helicopter came we heard it from a long way away. We could hear the helicopter and it. And anytime we heard helicopters, it would provoke a little paranoia that it was a cop, you know, looking. And so this particular moment, the helicopter hovered at the apartment window and we knew the jig was up and, uh, I, we all fled. It was like an instant. We didn't think or talk. We just all left. And I drove home as fast as I could to my parents' house. And I, I was also coming down off of meth. And the, the combination of, of that experience of fear, terror, uh, mixed with coming down off of meth, it was a cumulative thing that by the time it got to that state, I was done being on the planet. Like I really didn't want to be here anymore. And I remember very vividly being on my knees in the middle of my street, screaming at the top of my lungs that I wanted to die. And my mom was there yelling at me for everything as usual. And, um, um, and I, was, I was feeling those feelings, saying those things. And in my head, I heard a voice say, there's more to this life than what you're living. And I heard it. And I'm telling you that that is why, because I got curious about it. I got curious about what in the heck that meant. And I'm still to this day curious about it. Like, why? What is it? Is it this interview that's going to have an impact on that one person that you and I don't even know yet? But maybe there, I heard that voice because there's some reason for me to be here that is has nothing to do with me. And I'm curious about it. And so I, I told my parents that I needed help. I checked myself into treatment and I made a decision in that moment to not ever do that no matter what. No matter how bad I feel, no matter if there's a heartbreak, no matter if, no matter what, I was going to lean into how uncomfortable this might be, <laughs> and that was it. And that's that's what happened. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. They, uh, and I love that it's a uh, that curiosity because I, you know, that curiosity drives me like crazy, like in a good way. Like it just really drives me. Like I want to know more. Uh, it, it's it literally what drove me to invite you to be on the podcast. So I like, I want to know Catherine more. So I'm curious. I want to know, right? Like, so it, it, it drives a lot of things and it can really be that thing that 
can kind of keep you going, even if you don't know where going is. Oh, so good. And so obviously when you then started getting treatment and getting sober, I've interviewed so many people that have, have, you know, been down that road of, of having to get sober and getting over addiction and things like that. And usually what I find is that they have to find something else to replace what they were trying to cover up through the addiction and to begin with. So what was that for you? What was the healing piece of your journey that you found that was positive that replaced that negative piece of the meth addiction? I don't think anybody's ever asked that before. For me, I feel like I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. I was crawling out of my skin. And and that for me, drinking and anything, honestly, anything that could take the pain away of, of my own anxiety of being here, I was willing to do, basically. So I feel like it's been a slow-going experience of learning how to be in my own skin and be okay with it. And it's not, it's, I feel like it's a, it's a process. It's not something that just, there was not a, another thing necessarily. It was literally just learning how to, I started getting sober through the, the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and hearing other people tell my story and relating to them was a miracle. You know, we all suffer from terminal uniqueness, I'd say. So when we can know that our our suffering is not unique and that others feel and experience something similar, that takes the edge off a lot. And and so learning that and learning how to be here and look like I couldn't look people in the eyes or carry a conversation with people. Like I was just very, very, very timid and uncomfortable in general. So if I didn't like myself, I certainly didn't think you would, you know? So just that alone, that whole, this whole process of being here has been it. I'm just curious about it enough to stay and curious enough to be uncomfortable enough to find all sorts of ways to be here, whether it's through the art practice or, you know, I met Miguel Ruiz who taught the four agreements in his book, the four agreements I apprenticed with him. And that was, and still is game changing. Like I'm a bit obsessed with that kind of practice and process of looking at why it is we suffer and how to unravel that. It's, it's fascinating to me. Oh, well, I definitely want to dig into the Miguel Ruiz part because I know that's a huge part of your story. But I want to go back to one thing that you touched on in like the rooms of the Alcoholics Anonymous and other people sharing their story and you sharing your story and then finding the commonality in each other's stories. So how then has storytelling, you know, served you well? Because I mean, I know when you go out and create art and you do your photography and all the amazing things that you now do for a living and channel all that good energy in a, in a positive way, that it's a piece of storytelling for you. Like, that's just what that is. So can you talk a little bit about how, you know, cause this is, you know, you know, I'm a storytelling geek over here. I love to hear how other people interpret it. So how has storytelling served you that way? I was so uncomfortable. Like I've already shared that in art school, there was no way I was going to tell a story about anything. And so for me, be, finding a way to channel the discomfort of being here through creating something visual that I couldn't articulate verbally was like a, another miracle to me. So learning about conceptual art in general, that I could take 
an idea or a feeling or a circumstance in my life and be able to sort of through metaphor and symbology and self-portraiture create something that I didn't have to explain (laughs) to me was like, oh my God, I can't believe this exists. And so for me, that coupled with going to meetings and learning how to say the thing out loud without it being such a big deal over time has then become my life. Mm -hmm. Like now I feel like I have an opportunity to say the truth of my story without it being a big deal to give maybe somebody an opportunity to hear that and see that in me, that it isn't a big deal. And that maybe they too could use the tool of art to transform how they're feeling or just to be able to express themselves and get it out of them, whether or not anybody has to know why or what it's about. Like, to me, I feel like it's such a pay it forward kind of thing for me that the thought of not having this opportunity to to share my story through the way that I share it through the visual, but also now verbally. I mean, I I feel like that Uh I was given an opportunity to, and I feel like because I know the pain that I have experienced in my own life is not unique to me. I know that there's somebody else out there that could potentially benefit from me just saying the truth out loud, whether it's through a visual or through my story. So it feels like a huge gift to be able to, be here at all, (laughs) let alone through those two modalities. That's so big, because that's what I always say about storytelling is that it is a gift that you're actually giving to someone else. And, you know, even the whole um, concept around my business with light beamers and that name light beamers, the whole name of it is because what I really believe and know to be true about storytelling is that when we share our stories, that story is shining a light for someone else. It's illuminating the way for someone else. And so it really isn't about us anymore. It's not about anything that has to do with us. It's just about sharing that gift. So you just so perfectly illustrated that in your own experience. I love that. I love that. Okay. Now, do you want to get into the, I want to open, you know, go back to that other open loop, which is, um, yeah. How did this come to be like your work and your apprenticing with Miguel Ruiz and his work in the four agreements. I mean, I know it's a huge part of your life and a huge has been a huge influence in the work that you do. So tell us a little bit more about that. I am very rebellious. I was just literally talking about this on another call I was on that um, if anybody tells me what they think I need, I basically just laugh at them like, that's really cute that you think you know what I need and carry on. (laughs) And so (laughs) I am a bit stubborn about like, taking other people's advice. And I have to really, like I said, I wouldn't have gotten sober had anyone confronted me on my use. So it's similar to that where I had 10 years of sobriety and I was trucking along and had beliefs about at that time, I was going to meetings all the time and very involved and not hanging out with anybody outside of meetings who may or may not be alcoholic, but just like that was just the the boundary for me. And what happened was that um, I found myself increasingly uncomfortable at meetings. And if I felt increasingly uncomfortable in the one place that I felt could be my home, where the hell do I fit? You know, I, so I was up against this sort of similar but different place of not feeling like I wanted to be here. Like, if I don't fit there and I don't want to be out and I don't want to drink, I don't want to use that. I already did that, but I was very uncomfortable again in another kind of bottom where I felt like an alien and I didn't 
I didn't know what to do. So there was a friend who was saying, well, Miguel and his apprentices are in town and maybe you should come. And I would say the thing that I just mentioned of like, yeah, that's cute. You think you know, but no, thank you. And uh, finally, I was in enough pain to go to a workshop and I don't know what they were saying, but I felt like I was home and I felt like I needed to stay. And, and that was another turning point in my life where I made a decision to stay and listen and be available to what they were saying. And what one thing that st- struck me was that idea that 98% of the reason why we suffer is because of what we're thinking. And I thought, well, we need to have a little talk because, I mean, I was really pissed about that. <laughs> and, um, they clearly <laughs> they clearly don't know what happened to me. So I um, I had a lot to share about that until I really took stock and I mean it's taken years to unravel all the ways that I am attached to this story of suffering that I have you know accumulated through my life that I would clearly you know share with anyone about why my life is so hard and why I why why it is this way and and the work really we call it the work the Toltec work really sort of confronted all of that um, until I was ready to say, oh, okay, <laughs> I see that this is all because I'm doing, I'm doing this, I'm choosing this, and I don't know that there's a choice in this. And, and once I became aware of what was happening, I had choice, and then I could make new decisions and, and agreements with myself about who I am, why I am, where I am, <laughs> how I am in any moment. And that is life altering. It's freedom. You know, it is everything that I want, which is personal freedom. I, I want to be free. And and they were giving me a gift of, of, of an opportunity to free myself from a lot of the suffering that I was inflicting onto myself without knowing it. So for those who are not really familiar or know at all uh, what the four agreements are in, in this teaching of Miguel Ruiz's, walk us through those four agreements on a just kind of a really high level view. So Miguel wrote a book called The Four Agreements. He also wrote a book that I highly recommend called The Mastery of Love. And that that might even be, to me, a better uh, book around uh, relationship. But The Four Agreements are basically don't take anything personally. We could talk about that for the next hour. Just like we take everything personally. And uh, um, and and we think mostly people are doing things to us and that they should know better. And uh, and And then we retaliate. And that whole structure is causing a whole lot of harm both ways when we are making a lot of assumptions. And that is, that's number two, which it's, it's don't take anything personally and don't make any assumptions. We're making assumptions constantly and we think that they should know. And, and we're all, we're all doing that to each other. Then there's a being impeccable with your word, which I actually think is the first agreement. I'm doing these out of order, but the being, being impeccable with your word to me, is about how we speak to ourselves, about ourselves, first and foremost. And I think that when we become aware of what we're saying just to ourselves, about ourselves every minute, mostly of every day, it's pretty earth shattering to recognize how mean we are to ourselves. And that awareness alone can make a have a ripple effect on how not only we start treating ourselves differently, but then it ripples out to how we treat other people. And the fourth agreement is to always do your best. And that changes every moment based on what's true in the moment. We have this measuring system that we're constantly using to, to decide our, 
you know, how good we are in the world when maybe we didn't sleep all night the night before. So our best isn't going to be the same or, you know, it, it really depends on what is actually true in the moment. So we, we use a measure, measuring system against ourselves to the point of uh, compare and despair to this, this perfection that we're trying to reach that we, we will never meet. So it seems like an easy thing to say, always do your best. But when you look at it through the lens of this perfectionism that we carry, um, it, it really brings it down to this very um, specific awareness of being true to the moment and not using it against yourself. So how long did you study under Apprentice with Miguel? A teacher that apprenticed with Miguel for five years. And I applied to, um, I worked in his office too. So I was helping him. There used to be a 1-800 number in the back of the four agreements and that number would lead to me and I would answer the phone and people would be telling me about what is happening in their lives. And I was speaking to that. I didn't know that I knew things. Let's just say it that way until I was on the phone with people and I wasn't looking at them. I was actually listening to them from another place, if that makes sense. So I was getting really um, an education in uh, this knowing that lives underneath or just past the words. Um, And that Miguel talks about a lot is that we are not what we think and we are not what we think we know. We are past that. We're right between those words is where the truth lives. So I was getting a good education in that by working in the office and helping him run his power journeys. And he had an advanced dreaming thing that you could apply to. And I got in and did that with Miguel. So I was apprenticed with him during that whole experience of advanced dreaming and, and still consider him my teacher, even though there's no formal, you know, I'm not going to see Miguel anymore at this point. It's been years and years and years, but I still consider him my teacher. So it's been, it was like five years of formal training and then me going off and applying it. Cause I think, you know, we can get just like an AA, we can get kind of stuck inside the bubble of a thing and think that's all there is. But if you don't apply it in the world, you're still sort of, I don't know, it's not, it's not the same as applied use of a tool, at least to me. Yeah, absolutely. You go and integrate it right to where really you, you outgrow, like you outgrow and don't need to be in that room anymore. Like you've, you've, you've kind of grown up and left the, left the house and you're going to go live and be an adult and do the real thing. Right. That's kind of what it's like, but yet you can still honor the, the lessons that you learned and that um, powerful relationship of teaching that you had while you were there with him, you know, and I know it's been powerful because you speak of it often and it's often referenced, you know, in some of the things that I've seen you talk about and share so obviously it's a big influence. And so then obviously, how, ha- how have you integrated that? Like, how have you made the Catherine version of that work? Like, how do you, how does this show up in your photography? How does it show up in your work? I know you do some coaching. How does it show up in that? All my classes, I teach art as medicine, self-portraiture as medicine, um, begin deepening, which is how to use conceptual photography or art to express yourself. It's all about taking the things that are not spoken and turning it into something visual and not necessarily needing to call yourself an artist, but just somebody who is curious about how to use the visual arts in that way, where the, the same way I did, where I was, I was not comfortable and, uh, and curious about something and how to take 
the tools of the Tooltech path and use it and turn it into something visual. So it's it's absolutely everything that I do. I think that I I can't see through another lens than the, you know, I've been sober almost 34 years now. So it's accumulation of of stalking, that would be a direct term that he would use in the Toltec path of be, being like a jaguar and stalking my mind all the time and watching myself all the time in relationship, in, in, in relationship with myself, in relationship with others, in relationship with my, my version of God and, and how I'm showing up or not showing up as a result of a belief that I have that's holding me prisoner in some way and grappling with those things we're all grappling with that stuff. I just want to explore it and investigate it through the art process. So I'm taking his, the, the methodology and my own, you know, journey of being here and integrating it and funneling it into ways to help other people do the same through, through the art practice, through mentoring, through taking them on retreats, artist retreats. It's not really an artist retreat. It's literally learning how to be an artist of your, of your life, learning how to love yourself no matter no matter fucking what. And 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 then that's, that's been my journey, so I'm just offering the same practice that I'm going through in everything that I do. You know, I know there's another big piece of um your journey and that's been uh, kind of how you've turned into an activist of sorts in a big way as a result of having your son. So let's talk a little bit about that story too because it's a I think all of these start to weave together in really cool ways in terms of how you how I see it, Catherine, is how you have like truly found your voice, you know, like really sharing the story, um, not only your story and like falling in love with yourself again story, but now like being an activist by telling someone else's story who can't be that that storyteller for himself. So can you talk a little bit about your son and tell us more about him? I have a little dude named Max who is 12. He happens to have Down syndrome. And uh, I was thrust into this whole eye-opening experience of what it means to uh, be the mother of somebody that most people don't want. And, and that most people take tests when they're pregnant to make sure that they don't have a child with Down syndrome or any sort of syndrome, honestly. Um, and, and I gave birth to somebody that this geneticist said when I was carrying my little seven-week-old uh, child, or maybe it was seven days, I don't know. It was my first experience of ableism, but he said, you know, there's a pill you could have taken for that. And that's when I realized like, wow, this is where, okay, this is, it's on. <laughs> I didn't say anything about not wanting to have this child, but that doctor certainly decided that, that, who I have in my arms is not was not worth the you know the birth uh, that I went through, and it's been that way ever since. Like I went to a, a mommy's you know playdate thing every Monday with my son and the people that were in the neighborhood, and I would just sit there with my son, and everybody would talk over me and around me, and they'd make playdates, and he was never invited. I don't think he had really friends until he was about five or six years old. So like summer was just me and him or me and him and his dad at the time. And um, we're now divorced. That's why I said that way. But um, but he didn't nobody wanted to be around him. People didn't know what to say to me. I lost friends when I gave birth to him because nobody knew what to do. I didn't have the typical experience of what you think it's like to become a mom and have the community come in and celebrate. They were like not looking at him, not wanting to hang out with me, not inviting us to anything. It was very, very lonely. 
and very, very um, upsetting to hear what people have to say when they didn't even know who he was. They just decided what he was based on a diagnosis that he had. And and what is interesting about this, I mean, it's it's interesting in that I grew up feeling like I was an alien creature and that I didn't I didn't fit in and I didn't I didn't know how to relate to people and I thought that I I was defective and I thought that I shouldn't be here and I had all sorts of beliefs about myself and um and I was I was bullied and I was treated poorly and you know all sorts of things happened but my son thinks he's great knows he's great knows he's talented, knows he's funny, knows he's cool, knows he's hip, has very little fear, and uh, wants to hug everyone and make sure that everyone's included. When we're, when we're in a group, he makes sure every single person is looked at, hugged, acknowledged. He doesn't let anybody get away with being left out, <laughs> and uh, even if they would like that. <laughs> and, um, um, and I find it interesting that like we, as a culture, decided something about him that he doesn't feel about himself. And so it's the almost the exact opposite of my experience of living in that people look at me and think I'm I I'm typically developing I'm normal, but inside I'm suffering, right? So in a lot of ways I think what a gift I'm being given to see what it's like to have self-esteem no matter what. I'm being given this gem of a treasure of a dude who really loves himself. He's modeling it for me. He also doesn't hold resentment. He doesn't, if I, if he's mad at me, I can look at him and give him a cute, like a face. He just, he drops it. He doesn't carry stuff. Whereas, you know, I'm taught that it's, or I have taught myself to hold on to things because it's not safe to let stuff go. Cause then I could be hurt again or something. That whole lie of, um, you know, needing to defend myself against what might happen. He doesn't do that. So anyway, I feel like it, it is a great honor now that I do have a little bit of a platform to use it to, to express to people that he is not Down syndrome. His name is Max, and he happens to have an extra chromosome, and to open people's eyes to what we haven't been taught, which is that all people are unique individuals with something valuable and, and unique to share if we would just like lean in and look including ourselves. I don't even think we give that to ourselves. So I feel I am a unique individual, <laughs> you know, like who says that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Such a powerful teacher, you know, like what, what a powerful thing. Like just the fact that that's been your journey and that's you know, that was the, um, the child that God sent to you so that that lesson could be learned and integrated into your own life in a deeper way that maybe you wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And now you get to turn around and share that message with more people. I saw on your, I think it was on your social media, pretty sure that's where it was, a project or something that you're doing called His Name is Max. Tell me more about that. Well, I decided a while ago to start something called the Max Harrison Foundation. It hasn't been officially launched yet. Um, but I want to, my experience is that if, it, it was kind of a sneak attack, honestly, on my part, because I thought, well, I'll just teach kids with Down syndrome how to use cameras for self-expression. 
But really what I wanted to do was to show people that all people have a different point of view. They're not just Down syndrome. And that that is so important to me to to sort of illustrate that by literally using the kids with Down syndrome to show themselves. Like they have the opportunity here. Here's a camera. If I give you all the same assignment, you're not going to, you're not going to see the same. You're not going to say the same. You're not going to, you know, so in that regard, it was, um, and that's why I call it a sneak attack because I would like to, um, offer our culture another point of view by showing, not just telling. And so, uh, that's the end goal for me is to have some sort of program that is a global program that could, that could travel, not just be in Los Angeles where I live, but have some sort of key elements where people can teach kids with Down syndrome how to use cameras, but then maybe open it up to all sorts of medium. That just happens to be the one that I understand how to use. Um, And that's what I've been doing with Max is teaching him how to use cameras for his own self-expression. And uh, and I've been working on a project of my own called His Name is Max, and I'm looking for funding uh, to continue that project, which is my own portraiture of my son showing himself through the lens. Um, but the, the way that I'm photographing him, there's a process I'm using where there is a, uh, there's chemistry that sort of, it looks like a painting. It looks like there's something covering up his face in, uh, in many instances. And it feels very obvious. It's a, like a metaphoric of how we don't see Max. We actually see our, our own, uh, stereotype of what we think he is or who he is. And so I'm exploring that uh, through this project and wanting to show it in galleries and have it published in a book so I can write more specific stories about all of this that we've been talking about, but also sharing him as a unique individual rather than uh, what we've all been sort of taught, which is don't look over there, put him in a class. Don't, you know, they put him down the hallway. They, they put him up for adoption. They, you know, all of the things that we do out of not knowing. That is incredibly, incredibly beautiful. I love that vision. I love um, what you're creating there and just how you're teaching through that art and through that series of what you're creating. Um, and also love the idea of your of your nonprofit or the foundation or whatever with the Max Harrison Foundation, where you know you would actually be teaching that to other to other kids. So powerful, yeah. So you talked a little bit about specifically kind of like the the camera technique and the things that you're using for that particular project. Overall, like how would you describe and you know if someone doesn't know about your art and your in your photography. Is there a certain style of photography that you're really known for? Like what's your jam there? The four by five camera a whole lot. And that is basically the camera that Ansel Adams was using with the bellows um, carrying. I don't know how he did what he did, carrying it up the mountainside. Um, I don't carry it anywhere like that, (laughs) Um, but I use film. I'm very, very um, in love with the certain film that that is actually newer it came out in 2016, but it is a peel apart film. So right. I am into instant gratification. So I do use film, but I can process it on the spot and peel it open while I'm standing there with Max sitting there or whatever and see a positive and a negative and have both immediately. And the positive is 
coated. That's the part that gets coated in this chemistry and has such a unique and beautiful look to it. It looks like a painting. And I, I, some people want the negative and I just, uh, metaphorically, <laughs> the negative is an interesting thing to be using as well. But I really am interested in, in how that positive image looks. And I scan that in and blow that up really big because of the textures that it leaves behind in the process of being developed. So people know me for that. They also, I would say, because I am in love with looking at what lives in between the words, like I was talking about earlier, I tend to want to explore that in my photography by um, usually a photograph is taken in a 60th of a second and it stops motion. And I'm actually interested in keeping it open longer. So you're gathering more information than what we can see with our eyes. And so I'm looking at the capturing the breath and the heartbeat and the dreams and the wishes and the desires of that person I'm looking at on that piece of film. So, so I'm, I, I love exploring longer exposures and, and almost every sort of project that I'm working on. Oh, that is so cool. So fascinating. Thanks. You know, and that, that style of camera, I mean, that's like old, it is. right? Like yeah. that's been around for a long time. Yeah. 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 The, the first I I also really like a process called the wet plate collodion process. I don't do it right now because the chemistry is, it's not, it wouldn't be safe to have around my son. So I try not to keep that kind of stuff around, but that was from the 1850s. That's when all of that sort of came to light. Like those soldiers that were, you know, the portraits that we see of soldiers and they're not smiling. They're not smiling because it's a long exposure and they, you know, it would look funny. So they're, they're holding still for this long exposure to be taken. And so in that regard, it's a very, very, very old sort of practice and process that I, I'm really, I really relate to it in a way that I don't with my, I mean, I do use my cell phone too. So, I mean, there are gifts in all of those practices. I do like digital photography too. Um, but this is just the one that I've, I've felt more aligned with. Well, as I said earlier, you have some pretty big accomplishments, you know, like in your bio, we, you know, can see that you've been on the, you know, have gotten the cover of National Geographic. What was that like? Like, was that a, like a crowning glory moment? Yeah. <laughs> I was a wedding photographer at that point, and I was um, applying to these juried shows inside magazines, like big prestigious magazines would say, we're doing a spotlight on wedding photographers. Enter your favorite thing and see if you win. And so I would enter these things, and I, I would get in the magazine, and National Geographic was looking through the winners of the magazine, you know, of the contest, and saw my pictures and reached out to me and said, you know, we're doing a story about the where the energy of love comes from, like a scientific look inside love. And we love this image you took. And we're wondering if we could pay you to have your image on the cover of our magazine. I'm like, are you kidding me? I would pay you to have, you know, it was such a weird, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, it was just like nothing I had ever expected to happen. Not like that. I mean, so it was a true, yeah. It, it And Truly, it, it does tie into what I teach people, which is to get out of your own way and like enter the thing. You have no idea who's looking at it or what it's for or any of that. Just get out of your way, make the work, put it online, get it in the juried shows and, and see what happens. So 
that's how that happened. <laughs> was that was that like a pivotal moment in your career, though? Because I mean, I can imagine that that opened up a few more doors, like when people see your. Well, I think um, I think when people see it, it just to them gives me legitimacy um, that I had. You know, I was. It's the same work, but because it is on that magazine, it it does give me legitimacy. So that in re- in regards to my career, I think just helps people trust me. You know what I mean? As a photographer, I think that's what we as a human race are looking for. Like, how do we know this person is, I don't know, can we trust this person? And, uh, and you know that. And then we learn that in, in uh, business too. It's not, I, I could say I have the same, I'm using the same cameras. I'm using the same eyeballs. I'm using the same intention, but who I'm seen with makes a difference to somebody of whether or not they're going to hire me or not. So in that regard, it's helped other people believe in me that may, may not have initially for sure. Well, such a cool experience nonetheless, you know, to, to have that, have your work be recognized at that level is, um, had to make you feel pretty good. I felt like, okay, I'm done now. (laughs) (laughs) And we're done. And scene. (laughs) Yeah. I have lived. Exactly. It's such a strange experience. Yeah. Okay. So uh, tell me what is something, a vision you have for the future? Like, what do you want to work? I mean, obviously we're, you know, you've got the Max project and that's a big, I know that's a big thing that you want to create for the future, but um, what else, anything else that you want to share that is like a vision you want to put out into the world so that we can hold space for you with that? Just recently, I had a a conversation with a man named George Bryant. I met because of you. I met him because of you. So I have you to thank for that um, and the mastermind that we're in. Um, But I I had the opportunity to ask him specifically, like, who am I talking to? (laughs) Because in my work, I get a little confused because I'm a recovering alcoholic. Am I talking to just people in recovery? Am I talking to people that are spiritual seekers? Am I talking Am I talking to artists? Who am I talking to? And um, and he encouraged me to th- consider talking more to people that are in recovery. And I had been sitting on that since that one conversation that happened a couple months ago. And just literally in the last couple weeks, I really made a decision to focus on and move forward very boldly in the direction of uh finding more people in that community that could benefit from art as medicine and to speak more um, specific to people who are either in recovery, wanting to be in recovery, or are in a lot of pain and maybe could could use it. Um, uh, and so that is really my next, I think, I go through a lot of reinvention in my career. I give myself permission to change my mind at any time. And so this has been a another one of those moments where I'm really shifting a lot of my attention to people who are in recovery from the pain of addiction and to offer them an opportunity to use art as their medicine. Um, With my online class, Art as Medicine, but also with my, I I lead retreats in France. um, And it's usually people that take my classes that sign up for those. And so I do see myself just more actively uh, in that uh, community. And I, you know, I'm writing a, a book right now, a memoir, and I stopped for a minute. And it's similar to 
the, all the other work where I just really want to reach that one person that's still suffering to know that there's another opportunity for a life that they could never imagine could be so blissful. So I'd really like to. Yeah. And here you are living proof of that. Like if you look back on that girl who, you know, struggled through high school and that helicopter moment and like the, the runaway and like where you are now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's what the the thing. And now too, the fine art is, is front and center, which I've, I've been making the work, but not necessarily um, full steam ahead with finding collectors and finding galleries and finding interior designers or finding hotels or finding the places where it could be seen with another opportunity to share that like I took something I mean, I didn't want to be here and now I get to be here and I get to make something out of nothing and I get to share it with somebody else who might connect on the same level in a way that's not verbal. I, I just, I'm in love with that whole, the whole idea of reinvention and, and, and having this opportunity to make my art and share it with the world. It's pretty extraordinary. That is so cool. That is so cool. I love that vision and I love that 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 whole unfolding right with george and then you asking the question and seeking and then getting that first of all getting the piece of advice and then you didn't shuck it away <laughs> i was i said it to his face i said well i can't even i don't even know i don't want to do that no and he said well the reason that you're resisting it is is the reason that that will be your biggest growth he said it will be your biggest growth edge or something like that and i was like oh I'm so mad at that right now. <laughs> I know. George is right about a lot of things. And yeah, he's he's uh, he's made me angry a time or two also because, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, he's right. I don't want him to be right. But uh, but that's good. That's what good people in our lives do for us is they hold up a mirror when we need to see it. When we need to see it. So, OK, you did something really cool. I have to say this. So, you know, when people I, you know, to book on the podcast, I send out a link and you get on my calendar and I ask you some questions and you fill out the form and all of that. And there's a question at the end of my form that no one ever answers. No one ever fills out. It's real, and I don't know what episode we're on, but like whatever episode this is, I've been doing this now, you know, for a few, <laughs> for four or five months running this podcast and longer than that, like six months, seven months, and no one has done it. And you did it, which is like, I love this so much, which was like, it's like a question. Like, you know, if you could ask April a question, what would it be? Right. And it's like the moment of like turning the interview on me, um, which I just loved. And I'm going to grab the question because you said, I want to know the unexpected gifts that this podcast gives you and what the gifts, what the gifts are inside doing the work that you do in the world that you didn't expect. Such good questions, such good questions. So since you asked, I'm going to oblige and share, share the answer to that. Um, number one, I want to talk about the gifts of doing this podcast because this was something that I resisted doing for a while. Not that I didn't think I could do it, but um, I made a lot of excuses around not doing it. And I've talked about this pretty openly on previous episodes of the, of the podcast. This right here, interviewing people, is like the easiest thing in the world for me. I could do this all day long. 
it's like not work, right? I love it. Like I, like you, I'm extremely curious. I find people innately interesting. And I always want to get to the bottom of that. Like, where does that come from? You know, so doing interviews is really, really easy. But what I intentionally decided to do when I created this podcast was to let it also be a space where I could share my stories. Because as someone who's been a journalist and an interviewer and a storyteller most of my career, I have always been doing this work, interviewing other people and getting the stories out of them. But I haven't always given myself the chance or the opportunity or the microphone to really excavate those stories from myself. Um, and that has been the gift of this podcast. So not all of my episodes are interviews. I intentionally weave in solo episodes so that I can do that work for myself and with myself. And it's a gift to myself. And it's hard. It is, it is a, it's a challenge. I actually have an episode sitting on my, on my docket right now that I need to record. And um, I find myself every single week that one of the solo episodes is coming up that I've planned. I procrastinate and I wait and I wait and I wait. And then I finally get pissed off at myself enough that I'll go record the episode. But it's because it's, it's, um, it's hard work, but very important. And that's been a gift that this podcast has been to me personally, in addition to obviously getting to do the work that I love, um, which is like talking to people like you, right? Like, I love it. I could do it all day. Um, and then just like in general, the work that storytelling has done for me that I didn't really expect the gift of this that I didn't really expect. I didn't really expect to find out. I didn't really expect how good I was going to be at it. And I didn't really expect to learn things about myself that I didn't know were there, namely um, intuition. Like I didn't have language around being highly intuitive or understanding what intuition is until I really started digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the, this work of like talking to people. And, you know, I, I do ask good questions and I know that I do. I don't know where that comes from, right? Like, how do you know to ask those questions? And the, I've, I've studied that and asked myself that a lot. Like, how do I know to do that? And it comes to, it comes back to intuition. I just feel like I'm being guided. I'm being prodded. Like I can sense things are there. So therefore, I know the questions to ask because I already know the story is there before the person tells me. And it's been fascinating to discover that intuition. So um, it's been a really cool journey. So those are, that's what I would say. And so thank you for providing such great questions in that little form. And um it was so fun to think about, you know, fun to think about that and, and share, share that answer with you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was told to do an online summit and I did not know that I was good at that either. And I, I feel the same that I learned a tool that I didn't know I had and I knew what to say. I, you, what I see in you is that you are really good at listening and it's not just listening to what I'm saying. It's also listening to what's not being said and, and you, you can, have conversations on that level with people. And I, and I've been really surprised in a really good way at what you're asking and how you're asking it and how much you are paying attention to what is happening in the moment. So I just wanted to reflect that back to you, that this has been a really 
great experience on my end too. Ah, thank you so much, Catherine. I just adore you. And I'm so thankful that our our universes collided in the soul-centered CEO collective so that we could just get to know each other and get to celebrate each other and cheer each other on and, you know, connect, connect us with new people that are enriching our lives. And uh, so very, very, very excited to see, you know, what happens next with you and these beautiful visions that you have bringing them into. And I love, into I love reality. this whole podcast unfolding for you and what it's actually providing you an opportunity to just to like follow more deeply in love with yourself too. Yeah. To honor our story, to honor our story. That's what it's all about. Well, I thank you so much for sharing so openly your story and your journey, you know, with our listeners today and sharing a bunch of your inside stories. Uh, What is the best way for people to reach you and follow you? Um, I think the best way is on Instagram at the moment, which is uh, I'm at C just J U S T. That's the best way to follow me. We will link all of that up um, as well as, um, you know, some other channels to to check out Catherine's work uh, and definitely follow her and connect with her on Instagram, celebrate and support what she's doing. And I just look forward to following following the journey with you also. Um, I'm definitely a fan and so appreciative of your time today. And so uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's been an honor, truly. Thank you. I'm grateful. All right, everybody. That's going to wrap it up for another episode of the Inside Story podcast. Be sure to share this episode out. And hey, don't forget to leave it a review. Give us a comment. Let us know what you loved and uh, just keep supporting by subscribing and tuning in every week. We'll be back here with another amazing episode. It might even be a solo episode coming your way soon right here on the Inside Story podcast. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to give it a review and share this broadcast out with your friends and family. Now, did listening to this episode make you think more about your own story? Are you wondering which parts of your own story are relevant to share with others? This is the question I get asked more than any other. How do I share my story? Which parts of my story are worth sharing with other people? How can I make my story relatable so that others can benefit from it? I've taken my simple process that I've used for years as a journalist and broken it down into a three-part storytelling formula that will help you discover the key components of your own story and how to share it. It's a free resource I've created to help you become a light beamer by sharing your story. Simply go to www.lightbeamers.com and click on the big yellow button on the homepage to download your story formula. I'd love to hear your story too. So be sure to join my free community on Facebook, the Light Beamers community, and share your story with me. I can't wait to learn more about you and the story that's inside of you. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can get notified when our next broadcast is live. You will want to stay tuned to the stories we are lining up for you next. I promise they are so good. As always, Light Beamers, I'm over here cheering for you.
This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM. Women's voices amplified.